it is unequivocal that human activities are responsible for climate change. That's the finding of a new study by the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's the most up-to-date assessment of how global warming will change the world in the coming decades. Environmental experts have called it a massive wake-up call to governments to cut emissions. Every day, I'm faced with the challenges of our troubled and complex world, but none of them looms so large as climate change. If we fail to meet the challenge, all our other challenges will just become greater and threaten to swallow us. Climate change is quite simply an existential threat for most life on the planet, including and especially the life of humankind. The Stone Age did not end because the world ran out of stones. We do not need to wait for coal and oil to run out to, to end, end the, the age, age of fossil, fossil fuels. How can you know that I'm self-censoring? How can you know that you're self-censoring? I'm sure you believe everything you're saying. But what I'm saying is if you believe something different, you wouldn't be sitting where you're sitting. The result is an absence of checks and balances in Russia and the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. You don't go to poor countries to make money. I mean, the Philippines are rich. Brazil is rich. Mexico is rich. Chile is rich. Only the people are poor. Putin's a killer. A lot of killers. You got a lot of killers. Why you think our country's so innocent? Mr. Gorbachev. Tear down this wall. I mean, you are a millionaire funded by billionaires. That's what you are. You're not. You're not part of the solution, uh, Mr. Mr. Carlson. You're part of the problem. But there's billions to be made there, to be carved out and be taken. It's been billions for 400 years. The capitalist European and North American powers have carved out and taken the timber, the flax, the hemp, the cocoa, the rum, the tin, the copper, the iron, the rubber, the bauxite, the slave, and the cheap labor. These countries are not underdeveloped, they're overexploited. Let us be together and recognize another world is possible if we come together to understand the power we've got and achieve that decent, better society where everyone matters. I don't know who created Pokemon Go, but I'm trying to figure out how we get them to have Pokemon go to the polls. We are the ones that are suffering in the corporations that you're talking about, the businesses that you're talking about, in the warehouses that you're talking about. So. That's the reason why I think I was invited today to speak on that. He's deflected from the actual argument I had. What I try and do is be fair about Trump. What you do and to no one is else. be relentlessly anti-Trump and relentlessly pro-somebody like Obama. I'm not pro-Obama. I've been a critic of Obama. I'm a critic of the Democratic Party because I'm literally a communist. Um, so just take that into consideration that the people are the ones that make these corporations go. It's not the, it's not the other way around. The social quest against entropy. Humanity has not always destroyed the habitats in which it thrives. For the majority of our history, our impact developed organically with the natural world in which we emerged. Sometimes we would usurp the role of the megafauna we hunted, or shape the land to grow diverse ranges of crops. But for the majority of our time, we would remain in a balance with those ecosystems. A few hundred years ago, as capital secured its foothold, a rift emerged a metabolic rift between humanity and nature. Capital became the centre of gravity around which our systems developed, and our relationship with nature switched from that of symbiotic to one of unrelenting extraction of resources for profit, a relationship determined by class. When the earliest colonisers explored new lands like Turtle Island, now the United States of America, they found bounties of resources that would enable them to repay the debts they owed to their lenders and an abundance more for them to make profit and so began the forced displacement and genocide of indigenous populations, and a new relationship between these ecosystems and humanity was violently born. It was in 1856 that Eunice Newton Foote released a paper hypothesising that increased amounts of CO2 in the atmosphere would lead to the altering of our climate, demonstrating the impacts of heat absorption by CO2 and water vapour. Around the same time, Karl Marx was analysing the social relations that were newly prevailing in the bustle of the origins of industrial capitalism, where the factories of the late 1700s in England had spread across continental Europe to Germany, 
by the 1800s. These social relations are now global. From its very beginnings, despite initially being a progressive revolutionary force, capitalism has shown itself to be a highly brutal, exploitative, extractive and violent method of development, where, through the industrialization of production, the misleading nature of capital alienated us from our labour. Reaching from beyond our biome, its tendrils are the machines and desks where humanity's labour comes into the closest contact with its exploiter. Our contributions absorbed by the capitalist. Just a small portion is offered to keep us subdued. Just enough to keep us in a perpetual state of survival, with only the market on offer for us to access those things which we must find every day in order to survive. Water, food, shelter. All the while, those means are becoming more and more untenable. The few concessions to our working conditions that we've won from the capitalists were signed in blood. Though, as time has made us forget the wounds of the generations before us, we have found ourselves complacent, as those commodities, born of over-extraction, have blinded us from our deteriorating conditions. The capitalist monopoly ownership of our resources and means of communication inevitably blind us with their narrative, as we live in a society of their making. From a base level of 280 parts of CO2 per million before the Industrial Era, in around 1988 we passed 350. Ever since then, we've been at risk of changes that can never be reversed. We're now at 421, experiencing a bombardment of heatwaves, droughts, floods, accelerated melting of ice, thawing of permafrost, forest fires and a steep increase in disease. The USA, with less than a quarter of the population of China, has emitted twice the amount of carbon over the course of its development, before you even factor in their military, the single biggest polluter in the world. At the moment it remains true to say we cannot be sure what awaits us. Though, as we press deeper and deeper into the unknown, something becomes more and more certain without intervention. We are on a path to extinction. Ecosystems are burning in front of us, with up to 100,000 species going extinct each year, causing trophic cascades to tumble down food chains and impact every species of flora and fauna in the surrounding environments. Tipping points are all around us. If we lose 25% of the rainforest, we lose it all. Its ability to absorb water and bring rain into the dry season will be lost. If these effects are experienced for longer than four months, our rainforests will die and become a savanna. In the global north, short-term gains are always prioritised over thinking even a few months ahead, let alone years, as oil-rich geriatric members of an old empire legislate in their interests. Dubbed the Anthropocene, the age of human beings is undoubtedly here, the Holocene left firmly behind. But rather than casting an image of humanity, it will be capital's image that's scorched into the earth, an earth that may have seen huge die-offs before, but at a thousandth the current rate. If anything shows that capitalism cannot deliver the change that is needed, it's that we've known about the climate crisis for nearly the duration of this mode of production, and we are still driving directly into it. Titanic, iceberg. Over the past hundred years, there have been attempts to create alternative ways of living, often in less developed economies and isolated by capital, with one of the most successful forming in the feudal backwaters of Europe. Now, we must envisage a future of international cooperation towards stabilising our rapidly declining environment. The few attempts at alternative that remain undestroyed by the interests of capital, despite many attempts, are examples of some of the more hopeful, active efforts to mitigate the worst of the crisis we are facing today. Mother Nature is peaceful when we live in harmony with her, but unforgiving when we become complacent. We have many lessons to learn, and many insights to inherit as we move forward to build a new society. The solutions need to be both long and short term. We cannot react to every earth-shattering record simply confirming that we are on course for the quickest mass extinction in the planet's history as they strike us. We will not be able to keep up with nature. We must react, but also prevent. We must take radical action and start with our locality. Start with those around us, as capitalism leads our society towards total collapse, where currently, five degrees warming is perfectly possible. Any resistance can, by its very nature, only be less deadly than that. This extinction event isn't something humanity can persevere through. Capitalism is a machine, and it's charging on. We're in this together. It's a collective challenge by its very nature. 
and one that cannot be handled as individuals. There is a path to a safer future. We must reduce emissions to zero within the next few years. The most generous of carbon budgets to avoid catastrophic events runs out imminently. If we want to mitigate for the worst and continue energy production, we must bend the curve immediately. We have a very small window to save humanity. So we've covered a good number of facts and drifted through into the IPCC report, spoken about ways that that was compromised, and then feels like a good moment to talk a bit about the lobbying that happens for this to be the case and the various parties with different motives that exist in the mix. Yeah. The deregulation that begun, not explicitly and only begun in the Thatcher Reagan era, but that's continued since then and is going hard uh, in places like the infamous Florida that we've already (laughs) spoken about. Yeah. Are huge drivers behind this unsustainable position that we're in with being perfectly legal, air quotes, to kill the planet. For example, there's the Koch brothers, which it would feel wrong not to, um, to talk about. Yeah. There's also the Wilkes brothers. Do you know much about them? Not off the top of my head, no. They made their money in fracking and then um, funded some of the online right-wing publications. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, I, I think I vaguely do because I think they're like the, between the Cokes and the Wilkes, they cover a lot of that yeah. um, alternate media sphere, don't they? Yes, they do. Yeah, exactly. Like the Cokes cover a lot of the more traditional and then the Wilkes cover oh, a lot of the more digital. In a sense that the Wilkes f- sort of funded Pre-U. Exactly. Turning Point USA, yeah. Daily Wire. yeah. Ben Shapiro's outfit. Yeah. Yeah. Daily Wire has loads of big ones. They have Jordan Peterson. They have Matt Walsh, who's the leading anti-trans spokesperson. Yeah. Wasn't he the one who very much sort of directly had an influence over a law that was passed? He basically whipped up the frenzy. Yeah, you're right. He, He was talking in the hearings about the law and stuff, I think. And he made like the documentary recently called What is a Woman that was pushed all across the internet. Right. Michael Knowles as well. He was the one that like CPAC the conservative conference who was saying like we must eliminate transgenderism from public life which is kind of openly calling for genocide yeah so those are the, the outlets which, where they sort of yeah that's, that's their company yeah that's where they hang out and then the cokes being oil money that came from well fred coke oh god i know was the was the dad he, he was the one that was like kind of a chemist or something he started the oil refinery that later became coke industries mm. and then his sons charles and david david is now dead yeah i thought and charles yeah charles is still alive and there's this thing called like the the coked puss oh yeah which is like this maze of money and i've got some diagrams that we'll put in the show notes yeah which illustrates the way that their tentacles are weaved and webbed between from all these different institutions and organizations philanthropic organizations to media outlets think tanks think tanks exactly even as far as they fund the creation of academic institutions such as the Macacious Centre, which its purpose is to look at market regulations, you know, and in those institutions where they've like funded through their various bodies. Like Cato Institute. Like the Cato Institute. Yeah, they then have oversight over like hiring decisions and even student admissions in some cases. Mm. Which is which is crazy. Yeah, Cato is one of the examples. They also bought Time Inc., which used to own like the Time magazine and Fortune and Essence. I'm not sure how much of that it now owns. Mm. They invested in the Tea Party. Oh yeah. And they have quite a lot of influence on over like the Atlantic, which is quite a mainstream news source. Yeah. And the Tea Party, because they fund lots of Republicans, don't they? Yeah. And the Tea Party was kind of like a breakaway right-wing Republican project, which is now like that politics is now dominant in in the uh, Republican Republican Party. Party, Yeah, so Trumpism is sort of uh, an outgrowth almost, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, and with the Atlantic, they've got journalists that win cash prizes from the Coke-owned Reason Foundation. Mm which is like, you can imagine, um, like, oh, yes, good reasoning there. You've, you've, uh, you've managed to deny climate change. Well done. Here's your cash prize. <laughs> and then also they place journalists from the Atlantic at the head of some of their foundations. 
so it's very difficult to imagine this web like without just sort of seeing a visual and when you see it you can start to imagine how this money which starts at one place can then through these carefully crafted institutions represent the interests of these billionaires much more effectively in the American political system than the population at large is able to. Yeah, particularly since their uh, rulings, however long ago, about how there's basically no limit to private funding of elections and politicians and yeah. companies are treated like people. And That was the Citizen, what's it called? Citizens the... United. Yeah, Citizens United. That was um, a decision by the Supreme Court that basically said that the the freedom of speech clause of the First Amendment prohibits the government from restricting independent expenditures for political campaigns by corporations. And then that was like when you start to just watch the graph of like corporate donor money going into the parties just go kind of like the the temperature graphs. Yeah, mirror exit. Yeah. And there's also subsidies as well, where through the lobbying, the government gives subsidies to the fossil fuel industry to extract fossil fuels so it's not only a disincentive it's like a positive incentive to make it cheaper to do those things and then the other side of that which is also interesting from a policy perspective is that quite often when they try to create disincentives they put it on the consumer end so they have fuel taxes which makes fuel more expensive at the pump which can you know increase the profit of the industries and it tries to like bail out and put it on the population often obviously most affecting the most poor in the population who need to drive to their jobs. Uh, and movements like the yellow vests and stuff come out of that kind of policy with Macron uh, as one example. In France, yeah. Yeah, so it can be quite... Re- you can also have regressive ways of trying to address it. Yeah. There's this quote from an article in The Guardian that may not make it into the cut, but it's about the death of David Coke, I Mm. think. And then in the article it was saying, they were staging an event that was to become known as Freedom Partners, a twice yearly gathering convened in utmost secrecy of some of the most wealthy and powerful right-wing players in the country. To attract their guests, they included a brochure from a previous Coke gathering in Aspen, where the elite attendees sat around in mountainous splendour, discussing, among other issues, is America on the road to serfdom? <laughs> yeah, and you have the analogy of that in like, the UK, you have the spe- um, Spectator Garden Party, yeah, run by Murdoch, yeah. which had Sunak, Starmer, and loads of senior politicians. And journalists like Kay Burley, who was posting explicitly photos of her like laughing with the prime minister at the party and thinking like that's a good thing to put on her Instagram. And people were criticizing her and she was like getting really angry <laughs> on Twitter. Uh, and did you say the, was it the dad of the Cokes who was called Fred? Yes. But there's also Frederick, a, a child, I think. Because there's also um, Trump's dad is called Fred Trump. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a generation of yeah but also good ones remember but they were more friedrichs <laughs> i don't i'm afraid i don't fred <laughs> so on on the subject of like the think tanks and the the coke brothers 83 million dollars was uh sort of spread across 50 states um from different coke organizations mm. like the heritage foundation um and the cato institute mm over the course of i think it was a presidential campaign mm. but the point being that both of those institutes well the first two there heritage foundation and cato they're massive climate denial think tanks aren't they yeah uh, of which like the clip where rudker breckman goes on to tucker carlson yeah he points out that, that tucker carlson is a fellow of the cato institute as an example it's in our theme isn't it oh yeah it is yeah. america is still pretty much the most powerful country in the world right so um, if it if it really would want to, it could easily crack down on uh, on tax paradises. But the thing is, I mean, you guys have brought into power a president that doesn't even want to show its own tax returns. Uh, I mean, who knows how many billions he has hidden in the Cayman Islands or in Bermuda? Um, so I think the issue really is 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 one of corruption and of people being bribed and of not being, you know, not talking about the real issues. Uh, what the family, you know, what the Murdochs basically want you to do is to scapegoat immigrants instead of talking about tax avoidance. So I'm, I'm glad you're now finally raising the issue. But that's what's been, been happening for the past couple of years. 
Uh-huh. And I'm taking I'm taking orders from the Murdochs, is that what you're saying? No, I mean it doesn't work that directly. But I mean, you've been part of the Cato Institute, right? You're you've been a senior fellow there for well, years. You've been wait, you've I'm been wait, taking wait, their wait, dirty wait, money. Wait, wait, They're funded by Coke billionaires, you know. Wait, why don't you tell me how it does work? Well, it works by you taking their dirty money. It's as easy as that. I mean, you are a millionaire funded by billionaires. That's what you are. And I'm glad you now finally jumped the bandwagon, you know, of people like Bernie Sanders and AOC. But you're not you're not part of the solution, uh, Mr. Mr. Carlson. You're part of the problem, actually. AOC is... Wait, what can I just say? And It's true, right? It's true, right, that all the... All the anchors... All the anchors on Fox, <laughs> they're all millionaires. How is this possible? Well, it's very easy. You're just not talking about certain things. It doesn't even, Fox doesn't even play where you are. It doesn't play where you are. <laughs> well, have you heard of the internet? <laughs> I can watch things whatever I want, you know? I have, actually. I, I, I can't say I'm a great fan of your show, but I do my homework when you invite me on your show. So... I mean, you're probably not going to air this, uh, but I went to Davos to speak truth to power, and I'm doing exactly the same thing right now. You might not like it, but you're a millionaire funded by billionaires, and that's the reason why you're not talking about these issues. Yeah, only now. Come on, you jumped the bandwagon. You're all like, oh, I'm against the globalist elite, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's not very convincing, to be honest. To you, why don't you go f yourself, you tiny brain? And I hope this gets picked up because you're a moron. I tried to give you a hearing, but you were too f annoying for me. Uh, you can't handle the criticism, can you? And when you start to really get a grasp on the control that the industry has over the narrative and, and how it chooses what words are acceptable in mainstream discourse, it starts to become really obvious what's happening. It's the same with like the carbon footprint stuff, isn't it? Which is all just manufactured to push the responsibility onto the individual. Yeah. And they were, those calculators were invented by the, I think it might have been BP or one of the yeah. fossil things. Because even on the level of rich people, you know, a major discourse is kind of, oh, rich people contribute more because they use private jets and they use more resources like big houses that they heat and stuff. Even that is kind of a misdirection from like the source of their wealth being whatever kind of exploitative practice it is, like production or finance, which is a much larger footprint than their personal spending with the profits they make from those enterprises. Mm, definitely. I thought um, I watched a video the other day where some of these facts and maps have come from as well. And I'll put the video link in the description. And they talk about Stand Together, a Coke foundation is, is quite loose on their website about what their purposes are. It's sort of, you know, a philanthropic organization, blah, blah, blah. But in their tax document, it's much more explicit. And it says that it's, its purpose is to advance its members' common business interests by advancing the principles of free markets and a free society which is just uh, really, I don't know if mask off's the right word, because it's sort of masked yeah. by capitalist conceptions. It's a fundamental logic in a very direct yeah. way, isn't it? The conflation yeah. of free markets, of like the right for like international corporations to create monopolies with a free society, i.e. like individuals who are not oppressed and can follow their own desires. Yeah, yeah. It's it's that taking the word democracy and then making it mean that we have a unregulated capitalist marketplace. Yeah. And then using that as a justification to export it to other countries as well on the end of yeah. military, which you wanted to mention the military as well. Yeah, like to collaborate with other democracies. Yeah. <laughs> uh, just swap the word for capitalist economies. Um Yeah. And also and also even on its own terms, like only free markets in one direction, in the sense that they like sanction and restrict and put debt upon the countries which they're trading with. But yes. they want it to be entirely frictionless in one direction. Yeah, you touched on the military there. Mm. And like one of the facts that always sticks with me is the fact that if every carbon emitting nation stopped emitting carbon, apart from the US military, mm. then we would still not be on course to prevent the warming that we need to avoid. Oh God, yeah. And I think they have a, a loophole, don't they, that they don't include the military in the calculations of the carbon. Yes. Yeah, so we'll leave that one there hanging. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
What do you say about that? Yeah. <laughs> There's not really much else to say, is there? I mean, no. the military industrial complex in America, especially, is inextricably tied to their economy. Yeah. In a way where it's pretty much not just the core of their manufacturing industries, but it's also so deeply embedded into their political system and their defense committees and all these decision-making groups which directly benefit from a, a revenue perspective from the decision to prolong war yeah like they um lockheed martin um and all those private firms that deal arms their profits go way up every time there's conflict they make loads of money from invasions and like the head of Boeing is one time on the defense committee and then the head of Lockheed Martin is the, yeah, is the, the next revolving time. door thing. Yeah. Yeah. Like one example of how intimately they're tied is that the US military and the Navy control a lot of the international shipping lanes, which is the source of a lot of the US's profits. So things like that start to complicate pictures around reforms like the Green New Deal, which is like take a load of money from the military and put it into transforming towards a zero carbon based economy infrastructure and everything a lot of that money that's being spent on the military isn't just entirely irrational from the outside like within the system logic of capitalism it's providing the basis for hyper extraction of profit to the u.s economy yeah Uh, and like and the petrodollars that are cycled through that it's like they call it military keynesianism because a lot of the money that comes in they wash it through the military industrial complex and that basis of the petrodollar perpetuates the hegemony of the petrodollar in the world economy and that's something that's under threat at the moment but that's kind of how it's been working yeah yeah and and when you were talking there about the fact that the us like controls all the shipping lanes and and whatnot the international rules-based order which they they speak of yeah. you know as being like kind of what they are policing in the world is pretty much everything you just described there right it's like yeah. their continued oversight and control over like the world's economy their rules order for them exactly and you've you've touched on it a couple of times like the imf yeah and the way that the international monetary fund is basically used by the the us as like a wedge to force these predatory relationships on developing nations who often have been like put into a period of instability by the us yeah. like uh, the odd coup or funding of militias and through this sort of instability causes the countries to require loans on terms that aren't good for any of the people that live in the country examples like the debt crisis that's currently unfolding like we just had that explosion in sri lanka of social upheaval that was based on imf loans not being repaid Argentina has been in a debt crisis for decades and decades and decades, and loads of Middle Eastern countries are all causing a loads of friction there. Alberto Fernandez went to Congress on Monday to present his plan on how to help the country recover from the pandemic. He spoke about plans to reactivate the economy, industrialize cannabis, and investigate the loans granted to Argentina by the IMF. Para que pongamos fin a las aventuras de hipotecar al país. To put an end to the adventures of indebting a country, it is necessary that doing so isn't free. They cannot walk around and teach about how they carry out these debts. That's why I've asked to initiate an investigation into those who took part in the biggest fraudulent administration that our memory can recall. And the way that it works is is like, you know, alongside the loan are these terms which force policies and or the lack of ability to create new policies yeah. and to nationalize industries. Those are prohibited in the terms of the loans and are also coincidentally the sorts of measures that would be necessary to begin to take control over the carbon outputs and the fossil industries. Yeah. And again, like as an example, that is quite relevant because of its emotional prescience is that there's countries that are paying like there's african countries that are paying debts to france for example that are paying off for them breaking away from slavery and it's still being paid currently so this neo-colonial thing is like very explicit in some cases isn't haiti one of those countries mention haiti and this is what you'll likely hear from poverty natural disaster now political violence every report about haiti has to include the line that it's the poorest country in the western hemisphere but hold on for a second Something's missing in this conversation, right? We need to be all thinking about the relationship of what we're calling poverty in Haiti 
and the relation to the richness of the rest of the world. And, and how did the rest of the world get so rich? Let's start with France. Imagine if you were enslaved and after fighting for your independence, you were forced to spend the next couple of generations paying compensation to those who colonized you. Reparations for slaveholders is a new one for me. That is exactly what happened to Haiti. This is punishment uh, for their unwillingness to remain under the yoke of slavery. And they're still to this day having to, to pay for the, yeah, like you say, for the previous enslavement of their entire population. The opposite way around. It's the opposite of reparations. <laughs> yeah, just cripples like the ability to direct any of that money to the sorts of things that it needs to be directed towards. And, and therefore, like kind of increases the likelihood of unrest and the ability for those countries to stabilize and to make those sorts of decisions without an instability being there which is, in, yeah yeah you can't progress when like you're just forced to deal with the issues as they come at you yeah it's like an anchor or a fetter on your yeah so um i guess like while talking about all of these things like it's key to note the media's involvement in the proliferation of climate denialism the obfuscation of these facts yeah and for these records to be continuously broken and yet fed to us in such a way that does whatever it can to avoid any actual action taking place yeah like some people point to some progress in communicating the level of the threat to the public in the uk for example which has less of a rife outright climate denial than the us for example where the Republicans mostly deny the fact that it exists, whereas the Conservatives concede that it exists and then that we've moved from like climate denial to climate delay. Yeah. So the media like plays a big role, not very often now championing denial entirely, but it's more like delay, distraction, obfuscation kind of thing. Yeah. It's funny because when I was searching for some decarbonization data, the entirety of the search results that came up were uh, accounting firms, <laughs> the, the top five like, accounting firms that are pretty much pr firms as well and everything mm. and they're like tracking all the data and stuff but hand in hand with industry i imagine yeah so so they'll kind of help you manage the appearance like greenwashing stuff and yeah. creative carbon accounting and things like that will they yeah i mean i i sort of avoided actually taking data from them or looking at them particularly yeah but i found it quite telling that i immediately come across pwc and they are mm. the second largest professional service network in the world considered one of the big four accounting firms along with deloitte ey and kpmg mm. they're like yeah professional services pr like and that's we have the same revolving door there don't we where a lot of senior politicians come from that or go to that i was just going to say like the first thing that came to mind i think just because i saw it yesterday um, yeah. when you said that was like nick clegg going to meta like, yeah as yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah another good example of one of those things is the iea the institute of economic affairs because they're like a right-wing think tank and every time that someone like the BBC has like a discussion on a panel, they'll bring them on as like the right wing example. Mm. And then they won't disclose what their actual direct monetary incentives are for what they're saying versus whoever they bring on on the left, which could be anyone from like the Labour right to, you know, Navarra Media or something in a mm. rare example. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that revolving door is just present when all of these institutions, isn't it? It's cross-feeding of people who find their groove with the right level of denialism and yeah. compensation. Yeah, they're bourgeois class actors. And so like, these are all specific explorations in the way that the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie operates, where it's one class within every institution that is ruling it. Mm. And they kind of move between each other and they all like defend the same class interests consistently across the board. So it's hard to have any kind of breakthrough yeah. without a larger political project that takes those things seriously. Mm. Yeah, and I guess that's an opportunity to, well, move from the level of people in the institutions yeah. to state the opportunity to talk a little bit about, well, one of the stories I had down, I don't know, as a sprinkling of context hmm. was like the, the story of BP. Hmm. Do you know much about it, British Petroleum? I don't think so. I think like there's some particular facts that I can't remember right now that are like crazy or something. Yeah. In April 1951, the Iranian government nationalized the Iranian oil industry by a unanimous vote. Mm. And the National Iranian Oil Company was formed. 
displacing the AIOC, which was the name of BP at the time. The AIOC withdrew its management from Iran and Britain organised an effective worldwide embargo of Iranian oil. The British government, which owned the AIOC, contested the nationalisation at the International Court of Justice at The Hague, but its complaint was dismissed. Prime Minister Churchill asked President Eisenhower for help in overthrowing the Mossadegh. The anti-Mossadegh plan was orchestrated under the codename Operation Ajax by the CIA and Operation Boot by SIS MI6. Mm. The CIA and the British helped stage a coup in August 1953, the 1953 Iranian coup d'etat, which established pro-Western general Fazlollah Zahedi mm. as the new PM and greatly strengthened the political power of Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi. The AIOC was able to return to Iran. Oh God, yeah, I was going to ask if that was to do with the Shah and things. Yeah, so what do you know of the Shah? I was just going to very quickly say, mm. uh, in 1954, so three years later, that's when they renamed to become the British Petroleum Company. And the holding company was founded in October 1954 in London to bring Iranian oil back to the international market. And then uh, it continues to talk about the stakes and the ways that that kind of went on. But yeah, I just thought that was like... Mm, that's a great example. What was it you were thinking about the Shah? Uh, we just said like that's some of the context of the history of Iran where mm. the Shah was kind of Western backed basically monarch who they've since had the Iranian revolution against that and installed the more religious based indigenous Iranian ruling class. So they kind of supplanted the external one and then have their own kind of reactionary but domestically based project, which has then been recently challenged by the protests in Iran, which they've mostly managed to ride out now, it seems, but there remains growing mm. dissent and uh, especially against the overreach of kind of religious oppression and do indoctrination with like the head coverings and all these different things. But yeah, that was like the step before. Yeah, that's an example of the state working hand in hand with industry to establish private extraction and for the interest of the developed nations that can exert power over the less developed economies. Yeah. also got then China who I mean the population of China is roughly one and a half billion yeah give or take compared with the US population of 330 odd thousand so million <laughs> no, the US is really like, yeah. <laughs> yeah and yet they're, <laughs> they're per person <laughs> yeah I mean it's not far off that to be honest I mean obviously yeah. it's 333 million but um, mm. the the per person, um, I've actually got carbon dioxide emissions per person in front of me. I yeah. mean, this graph is quite a good one. I'll put this in the show notes as well, because mm. it's bar graphs, but then along the x-axis is population size. So the per person emissions on, mm. on the y-axis are going from like zero to 20 tons of carbon dioxide emissions. Mm. And then you sort of see the per person, China comes after Saudi Arabia, Australia, the USA, all of these are around 15 tonnes of CO2 per person, Canada, South Korea coming down towards like the 10 tonnes, Russia, Iran, Japan, Germany, and we're now sort of getting closer to about seven tonnes per person and then we hit china at this point and now mm. china's a really wide bar because its yeah. population is so large and so the area that it that it covers is obviously significant but their emissions per person is sort of lower than that of those other countries that i've just listed not to say obviously that they don't need to massively reduce their emissions they've got really dirty coal in china as well don't they yeah but they do emit the most carbon of any country yeah they do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they when when you look at like per country graph, which I'll also put in the show notes, you've got China at over 10 billion tons. And then the US is sort of currently at about 5 billion tons. So it's like twice to get to China. But then you take into consideration a couple of things. One, that the population is four times larger. Yeah, And then also the fact that the West has outsourced its industry to China mm -hmm. over the course of like 30 years to access cheaper labor yeah. and to increase profits, you know, in a way that they're now coming to regret, especially in America, because of the fact that they literally don't have the industry anymore. 
Yeah. One interesting thing on that is that they are still the second largest producer, the US. But, yes. Uh, the, the main thing that's massively increased is the amount of people who are working in it because the technology gains means that the extraction of surplus value is so high that it needs not many people to produce huge amounts of things. Yeah. And that still, still loads of it was offshore to China in the last few decades. Yeah. And the type of industry that's still onshore is, I, I don't yeah. actually know um, which industries are stronger and which ones are, but the US has exported certain types of industry to China, which leaves it with gaps, doesn't it? Yeah. Like chip, computer chips are something which they are unable to yeah. manufacture to anywhere near the same extent that China can. Yeah. And that's particularly relevant to the kind of arms race almost with AI and computing and the yeah. geopolitical picture with Taiwan, yeah. who produce a lot of the chips and then the Chips Act passed by Biden. But yeah, so, so you, you can see like how much room for editorializing there is within the media when presenting this picture, because depending on what you go with, you can obfuscate kind of blame onto other countries, particularly China and the kind of anti-Chinese rising rhetoric. And if you look at historical emissions per person, then a country like the UK would be very near the top because we're the first country to industrialize. And we had such a small population. So they present themselves today as like world leading. And there's also lots of questions about debt in terms of the other way around, in terms of reparations, where that's starting to come up in the COP meetings now, where the hyper-exploited countries are talking about being reimbursed for, in some cases, centuries of hyper-exploitation to enable them to make a green transition. And that was like starting to gain some traction. And then it's constantly being rolled back and diluted and challenged and things. And especially most recently, the UK, the amount that they agreed to pay to some global South countries, they've rolled back on. They said like they can no longer afford it because of COVID. Yeah. Didn't they just stop paying? Yeah, I think so, yeah. Well, one of the more controversial elements of the spending review was the Chancellor's decision to cut the amount of money that the UK gives in foreign aid. The decision has been widely criticised and a minister at the Foreign Office has resigned today in protest after the decision. Mr Sunak told MPs that to carry on spending abroad when there was a domestic emergency was difficult to justify. Our diplomatic correspondent James Landale has more details. For years, the sight of a plane delivering British food and medicine has brought hope to millions. The humanitarian assistance that can, for some, mean the difference between life and death. But now the government's cutting back. Crazy. I mean, China, as things stand, has quite progressive green policies. Um, do you know much about them? Yeah, well, one, one of the things technologically that's been massive is like pretty much, you know, the precipitous fall in the cost of manufacturing uh, solar cells mm -hmm. and solar panels that's been driven almost entirely by china yeah so the the cost of solar since 1976 where the price per watt of solar photovoltaics adjusted for inflation and presented in us dollars is from 1976 a hundred dollars per watt mm -hmm. to 2019 less than 0 0.4 dollars oh wow with each doubling of installed capacity, the price of solar modules dropped on average by 20.2%. Yeah, so the price of solar modules declined by 99.6% since 1976. Yeah, wow. Yeah, and, and it's recently that like green technologies overall are now cheaper for producing energy than fossil fuels. But this is like just another example of how the defenders of capitalism in dealing with this would say that, you know, the, because it's a rational market that responds to efficiency, then we would transition very quickly as soon as it becomes more cheap. But because we have these entrenched interests that mm. have like been historically powerful, that's just another example of a kind of reactionary institution that works against its own logic or its own professed logic. I guess the only other thing, which is something we can cover on another time, is like that in the way that we've spoken about US debt control and military control of global south like the new relationship that's becoming more relevant to examine critically is china's relationship to africa and east asia and various places where they're using debts but seemingly less exploitative debts but obviously there's loads of nuance there that's hard to glean and we need to go into yeah they seem like more rational relationships that are less predatory but yeah they are expansionist and the imperial relationship is still there and needs to be examined yeah because it's happening under capitalist development 
but we we should come back to and do that in itself shouldn't we at some point like you say yeah yeah Yeah, so i guess with all of this and that that picture of where we're at the state of the the issue the very fact that we are in the final years of being able to do anything about it and this discussion around policy and the way that that's influenced by lobbying exacerbated by the media and these reports are sort of distorted through those different vehicles all of which can be explained by sort of the profit motive driving our economy the global economy and our relationship with oil and gas which is like the massive legacy industry with a huge amount of lobbying power i mean just another example on top of having spoken about bp and and others and having brought up shell in the past i mean shell's highest earnings in history happened in 2022 during covid pandemic it made 40 billion dollars in profit and the gdp of 160 other countries is less than Shell's profit. Uh, so it just goes to show the scale of their earnings. And then Shell paid 134 million in taxes. Yeah. So these relationships where these companies are making such huge decisions based on their profit and loss mm. with implications of the magnitude of billions of people at risk of, well, the entire species. It's hard to put into words, isn't it? And biosphere, like other, other species, I suppose, as well. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I, I thought it was relevant to um, just let the seagulls have a little laugh <laughs> at our expense. I thought it was relevant to bring up um, a Michael Heinrich quote from chapter one of an introduction to the three volumes of Karl Marx's Capital, which was uh, in capitalism. Excessive profit-seeking is not a moral failure on the part of individuals, but rather a necessity for surviving as a capitalist. Capitalism rests upon a systemic relationship of domination that produces constraints to which both workers and capitalists are subordinated. Mm. And I just, I felt like it was relevant to the subject of climate because like Mm. very often it's turned into this moral argument about what individuals can do, but also how evil the individuals that have these positions of power are. But having a more systemic understanding of where we are right now leads to slightly different conclusions, doesn't it? Yeah. Like they're, they're not bad actors who are choosing actively to be that uh, in a moral sense. They're like compelled as harshly as workers are to accumulate as much as they can, as quickly as they can, or they will cease to be capitalists. And so like the subject of history isn't the individuals themselves, it's capital. It's the, the Marx calls it the automatic subject, that those people are capitalists insofar as they execute the accumulation of capital. So they're merely tools of an inhuman force that is driving us towards uh, apocalypse yeah i think it was sean from the antifada a podcast that we both listened to that was saying how it's like we're not in the anthropocene mm. we're in the capital ocene yeah 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 well capitalist compelled accumulation is directly to blame you know the proliferation of fossil fuels yeah it's, it's sort of um to be seen as one and the same So I guess the question of what's to be done is a multifaceted one, which we'll have to also continue to discuss from now until the end of humanity (laughs) or the successful liberation of humanity. In the short term, I mean, there's some things that could be done overnight being less predatory relationships between nations and debt forgiveness for the global south would be a huge step in the direction of enabling them to make decisions for themselves and have autonomy back around what's best for the sustainable development of their countries and the ability to produce more livable conditions for their populations. That one crosses a few of the points that we've discussed already, doesn't it? Yeah, there's like a lot of proposals like that are what you call non-reformist reforms in that it's a, an action that can be taken that doesn't involve necessary revolutionary action. Yeah, but it's a reform to the system because that would still be a system based on nation states collaborating internationally. But it's a reform that challenges the fundamental logic such that if it was implemented, the kind of system logic is disrupted in a way that would create opportunities for change. A lot of the socialist arguments are that 
these things naturally arise from the accumulation of capital, but that the new stakes that are involved now are that we could go from capitalism to extinction rather than from capitalism to socialism. And so that would be an example of a non-reformist reform that would change conditions such that new things would become possible, but it's technically possible within the logic of the existing system. Yeah. And with a time frame of less than five years to make some of these changes or move into a phase of much greater crisis, we want to abolish all capitalist institutions and start from scratch but also need to do some stuff pretty quickly yeah and so actioning things within what already exists to that extent is just a necessary step isn't it definitely nation states will play a large part necessarily in the beginning of the transition um if we're successful on the time scale that we need to be yeah and so sort of looking at that time scale and that ghastly orange confetti that, <laughs> uh, <laughs> when you begin to think of organizations like Just Stop Oil and Extinction Rebellion, which Just Stop Oil, what would you say, like split from, but not split? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how direct the split was, but they were definitely like spawned. Yeah, uh, definitely like spawned from Extinction Rebellion. And now it's taking more direct action in ways which Extinction Rebellion steps a little bit away from in the sense of like kind of disruption in order to try to appeal to a broader mass movement that yeah. brings that subject to the surface and enables people to organize among themselves and, and across different actions. But these Just Stop Oil actions are in the way that they are being presented by the media. Yeah can be paralleled with previous movements like the suffragettes can't they and Mm. that reactionary resistance toward change but necessary change that presented as as crazy but is in reality the opposite yeah and like the suffragettes will be looked back on in very different context if there's people to look back yeah and with extinction rebellion uh the way uh that we kind of look at it i think is they've been very successful on their own terms in that they've They've rhetorically gained, for example, the fact that the UK government has declared a climate emergency in words. <laughs> They've yeah. built themselves up hugely. They had a lot of success in their most recent demonstrations in London with, as you said, bringing together more groups, more climate groups that were a bit more spooked by the direct action, which now Just of Oil is taking on separately. But their terms is what we would critique more, I think, where it's like, originally, at least, they were based on two kind of core principles one was the non-violence, so they could get a mass of civil society on board. And the second was purposeful arrest, where they tried to get as many people arrested as possible to both try to clog up the prison system and make it very difficult for the state to manage their movement. And also to show the public that people are so desperate and like believe in the cause so much that they're willing to get arrested. Whereas for a movement of that type, I would disagree with both. Um, and also we want to avoid getting arrested as much as possible. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, when I went to the big one this year outside Parliament with my girlfriend and your dad, it was really good to see everybody come together. There were lots of different groups. I mean, one of the great things about XR's new approach being that they welcome everybody, all with the same central cause being this next mass extinction event and doing what we can to prevent it. And I came away with some really interesting messages. The conversation around tactics is one that we need to be more directly engaged in the conversation of. And as a podcast and as the mole, we want to do exactly that, don't we? We want to have productive conversations with groups like Extinction Rebellion about what they're doing um, and and find that cross-faction solidarity around these key existential crises. Yeah, and and I think as this podcast goes on, we'll kind of inevitably start with front-loading being more heavy on the pointing out of the problems and then as we progress more like back end um be moving to talking like the majority on solutions tactics and things yeah exactly i mean right now we're still like painting the picture aren't we yeah we're, we're orienting everybody we're looking at each section and saying like this is the case this is the case and then we're hopefully at the end here like talking about some stuff that's happening some stuff that could happen and then later down the line we'll be talking for whole episodes about what is happening in a positive and what we can do about it and how we can influence things and so i guess we're saying that this approach is going to have to come from all angles it's an emergency and so an emergency response is needed but for yeah. us to look at things both locally and then also productively at a level of your bourgeois your government and what they can do yeah. differently within this system of international capitalist relations 
both yeah. looking from the inside out and the outside in going to have to be simultaneously holding positions yeah. across both across all of them in order to have a coherent response uh, and reality is adjusting as we go but approaching it as the emergency that it is and considering what can we do to produce food and crops more sustainably um, because at the moment with big agriculture sort of controlling them they're extremely unsustainable and we are going to enter a period where a food crisis is almost inevitable aren't we yeah and like the, the uk play a big role internationally with financial services through the city of london with like washing money yeah that's offshore and everything so that's if you took control of the uk state that was something that you could do very quickly is change that relationship mm. under cameron they just completely banned onshore wind which is still banned now uh, that's another policy change that could make a big difference quickly yeah I mean, Trust was, I can't remember where, where Trust got with all the stuff that she was doing in her week um, in office, but she yeah. um, was trying to, she was saying that like solar panels are a blight on the countryside, wasn't she? And she was trying to, yeah, she's bringing fracking back. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't remember if like Sunak took it on and then didn't, didn't quite, but the, <laughs> yeah, basically, as you say, making sure that all of those easy wins are done as quickly as possible yeah. and turning our agriculture in the UK away from this strategy of biofuels, burning crops for for fuel and toward yeah. producing the sorts of food that our climate as it stands can produce be a much better use of of the land yeah other easy wins are like housing like building affordable good quality insulated housing social housing and insulating existing housing straight away yeah trains yeah. building a high-speed electric rail making it cheap or free at the point of use to discourage like expansion of highways and increasing reliance on cars yeah public transport needs to be invested in straight away and kind of locally but also well everywhere the u.s is an example of the country at the center of all of it like kind of the richest nation that's ever existed and yet has dams and bridges which are close to buckling and can't pass the budgets to to fix them and with a creaking rail network that's privatized and deregulated yeah. and the labor conditions are terrible but across the world better public transport and a move away from cars is key yeah that's another example of where china made loads of progress with building high-speed rail very quickly yeah 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 you can look at 10 years ago and now and the network is 100 times bigger yeah. and then you look at like the same in the us and it's shrinking or yeah. just look at california and they can't do one <laughs> one stretch or... or like elon musk is making those underground car things uh, <laughs> yeah that can't process anywhere near the same volume of people when like with teslas that just set on fire and yeah yeah exactly exactly and then we also want to come back to the subject of degrowth in another episode don't we yeah. but um but that plays a role here yeah definitely there's a lot of nuance in the topic I and mean, a lot of debate around it on the left but it is necessarily part of this conversation at least and do you want to do a very quick like introduction to it yeah it's basically the idea that the mess we've got ourselves in has been based on infinite growth which is prioritized by capitalism as a system even differently to previous modes of production and that transitioning out of it will necessarily involve an orientation that is either growth neutral like it doesn't matter if, if things are growing or not or anti-growth in the sense that we need to ramp down a lot of commodity production and, and energy extraction especially very inefficient and then there's a big debate around how you sell that as a proposal to the populations and if you kind of do it unilaterally immediately, then it's like the global north benefits from the extra growth that it's had for so long. And you don't allow global south countries to grow. But there's a whole debate about like, how do you define that and things? So. Uh, ever since the limits to growth in 1972, uh, I guess, there's been this critique that the world can't keep growing as it has been, uh, that it'll eventually lead to uh, ecological collapse that eventually seems to be coming true. Um, but it is a very strange moment because on the other hand, we understand that we need to increase very, very quickly the amount of green energy and clean energy that we're producing. And that requires growing at least one thing, solar panels, wind turbines, batteries, so on. Yeah, so we'll definitely come back to that. And then I guess um, a positive example to perhaps to end the conversation on mm. is Costa Rica, which um, 
successfully managed to remove cattle ranching and doubled its rainforest so it can be done oh well that's cool and so if anybody wants to point out something that we've we've missed then you can definitely do that we've got the tunnels at themoleworld.com as our inbox and so you're welcome to send over any thoughts ideas suggest any guests that you'd like to hear us talking with so do get in touch with us if you'd like to and then i guess all that's left to say is thank you very much for listening thank you to our patrons who are making it possible for us to do this and we really appreciate all the support that we can get if you're interested in making it possible for us to continue producing the podcast and then also move towards producing an exclusive feed for our supporters then you can head on over to themoleworld.com forward slash support and also just say um follow the show so you kind of get automatically updated if you could Uh, rate the show is helpful on whatever you're listening on and um, share with anybody that you think might be interested and so we'll speak again see you in a couple of weeks time but in the meantime take care and you bring the cheese i'll bring the crackers the change is here it is terrifying and it is just the beginning the era of global warming has ended the era the era of global boiling has arrived the air is unbreathable, the heat is unbearable, and the level of fossil fuel profits and climate inaction is unacceptable. The UN's warning came as hundreds of wildfires fueled by record heat continue to burn out of control around the Mediterranean. In Algeria, Croatia, France, Greece, Italy, Portugal, Spain, Tunisia, and Turkey. In China, Typhoon Daksuri made landfall today in the southeastern Fujian province, sparking fires, downing power lines, and shuttering schools and businesses. On Thursday, the storm lashed southern Taiwan after battering the northern Philippines, where it killed at least 39 people. Here in the United States, over 170 million people are under extreme heat alerts as sweltering temperatures spread across the country. There are some who think the way to protect our environment is to abandon British oil and gas. But that doesn't make any sense. Even when we've reached net zero in 2050, a quarter of our energy needs will still come from oil and gas. So where should we get it from? Those like Sakir Starmer who want to ban new licenses would make us ever more dependent on hostile states like Russia. They would jeopardize thousands of British jobs whilst protecting Russian jobs, while energy prices soar and even our carbon footprint goes up, goes up, goes up, goes up. Goes up.